It's so, I'm so glad to be here uh, back at Free Christian. It's been a little while since I've been here, uh, but I'm just so thankful for the way that Free Christian has partnered with the gospel around, uh, around the world with its global partners, but also down the road at, at Harvard uh, through the work we're doing there. And not just my work, but also, you know, uh, friends of this church, David and Roselle Hickendorn, uh, who some of you might remember, who, who are doing this, this work as well. Um, this church has been such a blessing to me and to, to many of the students at Harvard as well. In fact, uh, so my church is, is now doing an alpha course uh, starting tomorrow, which really was um, inspired by uh, David and Roselle coming down to Harvard and doing alpha courses there. I grew up on the alpha course, but I hadn't really done it in America. And seeing them do it made me go, oh, this is a good, good tool. We should use this. So the, the fruit of this church is, uh, is expanding across um, across the world, really. So, so thank you. I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad to talk on this passage from, from John chapter 2. There's so much going on in this passage where Jesus clears out the temple. You know, John presents Jesus as someone who has come to, to turn everything upside down. And I guess Jesus is going to start with some tables. The, he's coming here as Messiah. And I don't think that in the terms of the expectation of what the Messiah would do, I don't think going into the temple and making whips and flipping tables was like on the list. It probably wasn't even on the bottom of the list. You know, Rome was there. They were the oppressive force. And, you know, those who were the religious authorities in Jerusalem, they would be saying, look, we're God's people. God is on our side. They are the enemies. What the Messiah ought to do is come here and validate us against the, the Gentiles, the nations who have oppressed us. And so it's kind of an understatement to say that they were probably surprised when this, this teacher who would be Messiah came into the temple, the place where, where the presence of God was to be, the center of religious life for Israel, and started flipping tables. You guys probably would be surprised if someone came in here and started flipping tables. There's actually a table back here. Um, and, you know, I want, there's a little bit of anxiety as, as, as I start moving back there. And uh, I'm not going to flip that table. I'm a little bit more polite than Jesus. But that, that little bit uh, um, of anxiety that you might have had as I walk back there, you just times that by 100 and imagine how these um, religious authorities felt. A couple of you are really excited that I might actually do it. I, I love that. So he's angry. Jesus is, this is Jesus at his most vicious Why is he so angry? Because that which was to be the holiest place, which most represented God's heart, had come to represent human ambition and selfishness and greed. The desire to lay cost on the backs of others so that you might profit, to exclude and divide uh, those who could come and those who couldn't. You see, from the beginning of humanity, there have been two ways to be human. There was the way that Adam chose to grasp for himself the things from the world, thinking that he should get well the getting is good, get what he thought he needed. To kind of see a world of scarcity and try to gather as much as you can from yourself, whether that's in, in wealth and resources or in status um, or, or, um, or praise that you might receive, to get it for yourself, no matter the cost to other people, because we are fighting over the same resources. This is the in Adam way of being human. 
And this is what Jesus saw. It says at the end of this passage that he knew what was in the people. He knows what is in mankind, this desire to grasp for yourselves. Um, But there is another way. That is the Christ-shaped way. Where you see the abundance of God and how it overflows in our lives. And know that there is no lack in him. And so what we have of this world, we can freely lay down, even unto death, in order to make a way for others, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of others. There's always been two ways, one way that leads to death and one way that leads to life. But what Jesus was seeing here in the temple was that Adam way, that way that led to greed and selfishness. And this was supposed to be the holiest place. Making the fundamental point here that nothing we can build, even the temple itself, nothing we build can be so sacred that God can't tear it down. So we mustn't put our true hope in things that we have built. Instead, put our hope in the better temple, the body, the sheer humanity of Jesus himself. And let's be clear what's happening in this passage. Because this is often given the headline, Jesus clears the temple, Jesus cleanses the temple. He's actually doing more than that. This is a condemnation of the temple. Particularly as we see it in the broader context of the whole witness of Christ. In a couple of chapters later, Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman. And the Samaritans had been excluded from the Jerusalem temple. They were people who who were kept out, divided away from it. And they had their own temple to the same God up in Samaria. And she confronts Jesus with this theological question. We worship here, you worship there. Where should we worship? And Jesus' response says, Believe me, a time is coming when you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. A time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Jesus is pointing to a reality that to access the the inaccessible God is not going to be through a temple, but in spirit and in truth. You actually kind of see this condemnation played out in a sort of a poetic way in where the story is told in, in the other gospels. So in Mark chapter 11, the story of clearing the temple is told. And you might also know the story of the fig tree, where Jesus curses a fig tree and they come back to it and it is withered. You may or may not have noticed that 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 fig tree story is actually intertwined with the temple story of clearing the temple. So Jesus turns up in Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, and kind of that night he goes to the temple. And it kind of just says he went there, it was late, he looked around, and then he went home. It's almost like he was planning his actions for the next morning. And then on the way to the temple, the next morning, they encounter the fig tree that wasn't bearing fruit. And Jesus curses the fig tree for not bearing fruit. And I'm sure his disciples thought he was kind of weird, but maybe they were used to Jesus by now, kind of doing weird things. Like, Jesus, if you have to get it out of your system by cursing a fig tree, you, you, you do you. And so they go into the temple, and Jesus starts flipping tables, makes a whip, gets angry, stops people moving goods through it. People are upset about this, understandably, perhaps. And then on the way back home that evening, that's when they see the fig tree again, and it had withered. And the disciples went, oh. You know, it's kind of making this point, I would claim, that that the temple was made to bear this fruit, that God might be present with his people, but it had failed in its task. 
and it was now cursed to wither. And this was prophetic because the temple, this temple would be destroyed within a generation. And by the time John is writing, um, it had been destroyed. So we had seen the fulfillment of this prophecy when the Romans came and destroyed it in 70 AD. And so you get in the rest of the New Testament witness this, this clarity that God is not contained with things that are built by human hands. That's what Paul says in front of the Athenians at the Areopagus. He says, the God who made the heavens and the earth, he is the Lord of all and he is not contained in temples made by human hands. In 2 Corinthians 5, it talks about a heavenly house not built by human hands. And when we see in the final vision in Revelation, we see this heavenly Jerusalem come down. And for anyone who had been there, Jerusalem is like synonymous with the temple. That kind of defines what Jerusalem is. But this Jerusalem has no temple because the barriers have been broken down. That which was inaccessible and guarded is now made available to all. God is with his people. And in the light of this this vision without the temple, the condemnation of the temple, you might be thinking, but wasn't it God's idea in the first place? (laughs) Like, didn't God tell his people to to make this temple? So what, what is going on here? And absolutely, yes, in the Exodus, there was this problem to solve. Like, how does the holy God go with the broken people without destroying them? And so this this tabernacle, the tent form of what would become the the building uh, temple, was was established to allow God to be with his people, with great sacrifice, with blood that would be shed, that would priests who would stand before the people, where there would be curtains to separate the people from God and some priests from different priests. All this was made to fulfill the, the desire of God to be with his people. This has always been God's desire. We talk about going up to heaven, but through the whole witness of Scripture, God is much more interested in coming down to us than sucking us up to where he is. He's down with us in the garden. He's down with us in the temple. He comes down with us in the person of Jesus, and the vision at the end is of God coming down and making his home on earth. God wants to be with his people. So what went wrong? What went wrong? Well, whatever went wrong, it went wrong right away. Because, you know, as you've been probably reading Leviticus, because I'm sure you're always reading Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 9, this, this tabernacle was consecrated. And God comes, and it's this powerful moment where God is present with his people. God turns up, and it's powerful. But then Leviticus 10, the sons of Adam, uh, Adam sons of Aaron, give, a, give a, a bad offering, and fire comes out and consumes them. As soon as it's established, it is broken because of our failing, our disobedience, our in-Adam humanity to kind of push the limits and get what we can rather than trusting the abundance of God. It kind of models like the difference between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, God's good creation, and then the way that we break it. And so then through the rest of the story of the Old Testament, there is actually a lot of of questioning of the temple, of condemnation of the temple. Jesus um, doesn't start a new thing. He's actually drawing on what the prophets have said. This is explicit in, uh, in like Mark, where this story is told, where, where the language is written, not as you've turned my father's house into a market, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. Because that's a quote from Jeremiah chapter 7. 
And in Jeremiah 7, uh, this is a time where, where Jerusalem was under attack by the Babylonians. And some people had already been carted off. The nations, the enemies of God had come. But the temple was still standing at this time. And some people in the city were saying, look, this is God's temple. God would not destroy his own temple. As long as we stay with the temple, we'll be safe. Because it's God's temple, right? And to that, God says, do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Perhaps if you change your ways, then I would let you dwell in this land. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? All those broken ways of being human. Will you do all those and then come and stand in this place which bears my name and say, we're safe. Safe to do all those horrible things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? That's what Jesus is quoting But I have been watching, declares the Lord. That's kind of ominous, right? Whenever you hear God saying, I've been watching, like you're kind of, you should be on your toes. But he kind of doubles down on the threat. He says, go to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name. See what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. At Shiloh, a different town, there had been a sanctuary before the one in Jerusalem. But if you went there now at this time, it was a pile of rubble. He's destroyed temples before. He'll do it again. (laughs) That's kind of the point. So don't think that your safety is in this thing that has been built if you are not actually walking with the living God. And in fact, when this temple was built, the first temple was built, which was kind of David's idea. David was sitting at his nice cushy house. God's ark, the ark of the covenant was in a tent. And David says, oh, this isn't right. I I should build a house for God. And then through the prophet Nathan, God says, I never really complained about my tent. This was like your idea to build a house. So David, actually, I'm going to build you a house. You know, the line of David, right? And then you get like Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Psalms 51, where it says, um, if you desired sacrifice, I would bring it. The sacrifices of God as a contrite and broken heart. The truth made evident from the establishment of this tabernacle, this temple, is that it could never really save us because of our sin. And in fact, none of the institutions of the Old Testament established in righteousness by God because of our side of the partnership, none of them were able to fulfill the hope of salvation on which they were established. You know, think of all those things. The, the house of David that God made in that Second Samuel 7 passage became a, a, a house of sin and disobedience to God. The temple itself, if we've talked about, became a place of ex- exclusion and greed. The prophets themselves uh, calling people back to God themselves find themselves condemned. Zechariah 12, you can look that up. The priests became corrupt. All these things established by God for his righteousness do not meet the requirement to attain the salvation we need because of our in-Adam humanity that we bring to them. So why would God do them at all? Well, what happens is as you see the failure of these things, it's like a vacuum is created at the end of the Old Testament. 
that all these things have been tried and we still find ourselves in our desperate estate. And it's, it's there almost as like, lest we think that if we just tried harder, if we just made a bit more effort, if we just worked together a bit more, maybe these, these things that God initiated but were put into our hands to build these temples, maybe they would have done the job. God wants us to know that there was no way that that could have happened. That none of these things could have fulfilled the original promise. So that this vacuum is left where God offers his very self, his son, the one who is God and man, Jesus. You see, there was no temple good enough. There was no lamb pure enough. There was no priest holy enough. There was no humanity worthy enough for the salvation that we need for life. But in Jesus, in his body, we find both the temple. This is what he says as he goes on. He says they, they want a sign, right? They want a miracle because this is pretty bold action. So it's like you better have a miracle to back this up. And he says, I'll show you a miracle. You want a miracle? I got a miracle for you. Tear this temple down. I'll build it up in three days. Jesus has took 46 years to build. Don't talk crazy. But the temple he was talking about was the temple of his body. His body was the temple. You see, in Jesus, we have the temple that is good enough. And the lamb, the sacrifice, which is truly worthy. We have the great high priest who is sufficient to administer the sacrifice. And we have the humanity in his humanness that is worthy of the blessings of God. And in him we have God himself who receives the sacrifice. We have the king in the line of David who truly walks with God. We have the true prophet who comes after Moses as was promised. All of these institutions which had failed find their fulfillment not in their failing of the old humanity, but in the new humanity that is made in Jesus And that's why it's so important that it emphasizes that his body is the temple. Because the sheer humanity of Jesus is central to this. He is the new humanity. And this gets to the heart of what we make of all this temple language as Christians, as New Testament people. That we are united and we are purchased and we are given access to the otherwise inaccessible God in the body of Jesus. That is the location of it. And it is different. It is different from the way the temple might have been. The temple was this great building and 40 years before, Herod had turned it even into an even more impressive building. That's why they call it Herod's Temple. You know, you, you know, if this is supposed to be God's temple, you should be fearful of God's wrath if it suddenly gets associated with your name. But Herod had kind of built it up for his own glory into this great edifice. Building glory for yourself, which is completely different to what Jesus does with his temple, with his body. Because what he does is he lays it down. Anything that he might have had ability to have control over, he lays it down to the point that he can't even control his own body because he is dead. 
He had no investment in the things of the world that we might grasp, all those things of the in-Adam humanity, of our selfish ambition. He had no interest in those things. And so what were those things useful for? For laying them down for the sake of others. Because the deep truth of God's abundance is this, that the life that God gives is greater than the life that we can grasp for ourselves. And that's what the temple of his body lives out. Because even in that point where in terms of what we can grasp for the world, he had nothing, even unto death. There he found life and life in abundance. And he calls us to enter into his body. It says in Romans, we are the body of Christ and each one of us members of it. Romans 6 says we participate in his humanity. We participate in his death. And so we participate in his life. This isn't about trying harder to be the best human, to figure out human flourishing through your striving or through whatever temples you built. It's a, it's a call to borrow, borrow Jesus' humanity, to let our humanity be defined by his humanity, to enter into him, to be in Christ, to be bound up in his body as members of it. And this, in doing so, invites all people who are human into this. There's no longer the divisions of who gets, who's in or who's out. All people are invited because it is in the place of the human one, the new humanity that this new life is purchased. So no longer was it this nation versus that nation, this mountain versus that mountain, but all are united in the body of Christ. All are united in the body of Christ. And you might have heard the language in Scripture of your body as a temple. And I think sometimes this is taught in, with a kind of individualistic lens that we've kind of brought in our culture that all your bodies are temples of the Lord. And I actually don't think that what Scripture is saying. You can, you can go check in. We can talk about it. But as I've read it, it actually says all yours, so plural. In Greek, you can have like plural. It's the difference between you plural and you singular. It's you plural. All of you all's Singular body is a temple of the Lord. It doesn't say your bodies are temples. It says your body is the temple of the Lord. I believe what we're called to be as we are the temple of the Lord is to be Christ's body. That's what makes sense of all you all's one body. And then it matches with 1 Peter 2 where it says you like living stones are being built into a spiritual house, right? A stone by itself is no temple, but built together with Christ as the cornerstone. We are the temple of the Lord in that we are Christ's body. And then it matches with John 2 as well, where he was talking about the temple of his body. And it's a fundamental reorganizing what it means to follow and live in this faith. Because no longer is this temple the place that divides us and that gets taken over by, by human greed because of our in-Adam humanity, because it is the humanity of Christ that is manifest in this body. And all people are invited to it because we meet at the place that is common to all humans by definition because it is the human place, right? It's not in my town or your town. It's in our common humanity that we meet in the body of Christ. So what does this mean for us? Because I don't see many people running off to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and restart the sacrificial system. I don't think that's our temptation. But we are tempted to follow after our temples, the places where uh, we feel that we get access to that inaccessible thing that has been built by human hands. 
whether it's a certain uh, speaker or teacher that you found particularly compelling, or a certain book or book series or set of devotions or, or a certain course that you like. But these things, if we don't realize that our primary call is to be united in the body of Christ, these things divide us and can cause us great costs and can demand things of us and can be taken over by human greed. We see this sometimes. We see like, oh, I'm a devotee of John Piper or I'm a devotee of N.T. Wright and now we're divided, right? It's like, oh, I like, I like Hillsong. I like anything but Hillsong and we're divided. I like church like this. I like church like that. These are my favorite things, right, of how to connect with God. But nothing we build is so sacred that God can't tear it down. So we mustn't put our true hope and the things that we have built. But keep coming back to the body, the broken body of Christ, which had nothing in the world's economy, could not make you any profit, and meet there and see how it invites everyone in, an invitation to be part of his body. No matter where they've been, where they've come from, what nation they're from, what their background is, all meet at this one place of Christ. And there find life, and life in abundance, not in scarcity, but in abundance. So our call this morning is to lay down all our favorite temples. Let God destroy them if he has to. Do not trust in their strength, but meet together across the world in the body of Jesus, who unites us and makes available to us through his sacrifice, not ours, the living God who wants to dwell with us. Can I pray for us? Almighty God, thank you that you desire to be with your people and thank you that you have made a way in the body of Jesus which was broken. May we live into his humanity, participate in him and his death so that we might participate in his resurrection and be united in his body which we are all members of. And may we not seek after other things that have been built by human hands, thinking that you might be contained within them, Lord God. Unify us in your body, that we might proclaim this message of good news of your generosity and your abundance to all people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.